0: You are listening to The Cycling Podcast at the 2022 Vuelta a España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Today we are in Bilbao.
1: Hello, buenas tardes from La Vuelta a España. My name is Daniel Freeber. I am the host of tonight's episode and... As you heard our friend Rob Hatch just say, I am in Bilbao today in the Basque country. We've seen stage five of the Vuelta a España won by, not a Basque, but a Catalan, Marc Soler. Joining me tonight from Traverse City in... Larry, am I pronouncing this right? Michigan, I got grief the other day for pronouncing Michigan wrong. Is it, it yeah, be Michigan? I would say
2: I would say Michigan. Okay. Well, Traverse City, Michigan.
1: Joining me from Michigan is current AG2R Citroën professional, veteran of four Vuelta a España, as mentioned a few days ago when um, Larry made his world premiere. He's also a Tour de Swiss stage winner and 2017 U.S. National Road Race champion. It's Motown's finest because I discovered the other day that you were born in Detroit, which is also in Michigan, and not Texas. It's lucky Larry Warbass. How are you, Larry?
2: Yeah, doing pretty well. Uh, glad to be here today uh, for another episode. So uh, it was a nice stage, and I think it'll be a good one to chat about.
1: Enjoying all the accolades after your first appearance on the podcast?
2: Whew. Ac- I don't know if the accolades have arrived yet, but uh, but yeah, uh, no, it was a good it was a good day the other day.
1: Larry, before we get to the stage summary time trial which I know you've been looking forward to uh, Marc Soler discuss in, let's have another time trial, let's have a 15 second time trial, all of your thoughts on Marc Soler, a guy that I called the, well the misconstrued misportrayed Ferris Bueller of World Tour Professional Cycling at the Tour de France when he When he soldiered through a stage that he really shouldn't have ridden, um, sort of debunking that image that he has as a sort of freewheeling, slightly wayward, enfant terrible of Spanish cycling. Um, 15 seconds on Marc Soler, Larry.
2: Enfant terrible. Uh, Yeah, no, I mean, actually, I was really happy to see him win today because I feel like he's had a little bit of a, a rough go the last years, you know, just like... Uh, I don't know maybe he's been held back a bit more than uh, he could have been and uh, I know he's a huge talent so uh i don't know I was happy to see him win today but yeah I guess I- I've heard some of the stories uh you know uh,
1: uh, you've probably had you've probably had better stories than we've seen and heard um, have you watched have you watched the movie star documentary uh,
2: I did at least i watched the first uh year I don't know if I watched it again after that but so I saw some of the drama in the first first uh, yeah series.
1: <laughs> I suppose drama. If there was if there was one word that sort of sums up the well, the image that Mark Soler had had prior to today maybe or recently, it was drama. Yeah. I suppose yeah. again, probably probably slightly unfair. Anyway, um, Larry, talking of speaking of drama. Um, I would like you to condense all of today's drama into 90 seconds as per tradition, as per protocol on the Cycling Podcast from La Vuelta de España. So first, take it away, Rob Hatch. El resumen del día a contra on. The stage summary time trial. Larry, that's your cue to, as we said the other day, get the super snood on and your time trial helmet and roll down the ramp. I'm gonna count you in, three, two, one, Larry Warbass. Okay. Larry Warbass, off you go. Today was
2: stage five from Irun to Bilbao. It was 187.2K, pretty exciting stage. Uh, There was an 18 man breakaway that went after 77 kilometers. I guess it was a pretty big fight to get in. Uh, I guess it was 19 men, but my uh, young protégé, uh, Yako Hananin uh, unfortunately crashed out of the breakway once he was in it. Um, and yeah, I guess uh, the group whittled down by the final climb, the Alto del Vivero, uh, when Jake Stewart attacked uh, just before at the bottom. Had a pretty nice gap into that, but uh, was caught and passed by Mark Soler just before the top, who soloed to the finish. Uh, yeah, from 15K to go, uh, made it just barely to the line, uh, to take a nice stage win ahead of Daryl Impey and Fred Wright, uh, Rudy Millard finished fourth and took the red jersey. Um, yeah, I guess that's pretty much everything that happened. Uh, white jerseys Fred Wright now. KOM is Victor Lengalotti from Burgos BH. Uh, Sam Bennett still has a points jersey. Bunch came in five minutes, nine seconds down, not too stressed about the guys in the break. And, uh, yeah, we had uh, one abandoned from COVID today uh, named Dan Houle uh, from Trek Credo. So, uh, yeah, I guess he was the only third abandon of the race so far. But that's pretty much everything that happened today.
1: Well, that was outstanding, Larry. Dan Houle, of course, who was included, uh, rightfully so, in our list of redheads the other day. That was... Um, it was with you, wasn't it? That I had a very lively, yes, yes. very impassioned debate about who was and who wasn't redhead. I've been able to check a few. I've, I've got a closer look at the hair pigment off. of a few. Yeah, of a few riders, and um, I have to say, you were right about Jan yeah. Um There was no no red tinge detected there, um, and a couple of others as well. I can't remember. Tunison, but, um, Tunison yeah, yeah. Also, fairly dubious um, about. T- credentials as a redhead now um larry you mentioned our new king of the mountains are Monegasque yeah, pretty crazy uh, rider um have you ever come across him on the roads of the Cote d'azur
2: yeah i've definitely like crossed him in training but uh, i've never really talked to him actually so i don't i don't really know him at all but i, I know that he's one of two uh, Monagasque, uh professional cyclists another one is on the nice metropole uh like continental team so uh, yeah, pretty pretty big for uh, him, I would say today, and his team.
1: And there was a startling revelation from our friend uh, Fran Reyes, who is working for a new outlet called Relevo um, tonight. He spoke to Victor a few days ago, as I did yesterday, in fact. But um, Victor told Fran that he had a few years in the wilderness because he was suffering from a video game addiction. No way. Um, Specifically, yeah, specifically FIFA. I mean, it wasn't as acute as some video game... Uh, addictions that I've heard about I think he he said he was spending 3 or 4 hours a day um, on the couch but wasn't doing a lot else and um, as I said he didn't really accomplish much um, as a cyclist in that period but has fortunately overcome that. Um, Larry Today, well, the big story was Rudy Mollard taking the red jersey off Primoz Roglic. I I guess Jumbo Visma, um, well, we're pretty sure Jumbo Visma will be thrilled to have given it away. But they were the big story, Groupama FDJ. um, A fantastic day for them. It could have turned into an even better day because at one stage it looked as though Jake Stewart, um, their young English rider, might take the stage win and Mollard at the same time the Mayotte um, uh, Mayot Rojo. sorry um, it wasn't to be however they were understandably delighted at the finish today I spoke to Jake Stewart and the team director sportif Philippe Maudoui we're going to hear from those two now
3: yeah once we uh, once we got myself and Rudy in the breakaway it was kind of one objective to try and get Rudy into red again and uh, yeah kind of the stage win was also on my mind and um, yeah, I knew if I could get over that final climb towards the front then you know I could do a good sprint but uh, yeah I kind of got myself ahead for that final climb um, yeah I thought I was going to kind of hold them off and then still come flying past me I could just do nothing and uh got back on on the descent and then uh yeah both legs just cramped on uh, 5k to go and it was just game over it was a tough year anyway just with my Crohn's diagnosis at the start of the year and uh, yeah I didn't really know how it was going to affect me going forward so to kind of find my level again um, was really nice and uh, yeah obviously like you say yeah, a bit of belief from Tour I kind of knew I always had it in the legs and uh, it was only a matter of time but um, yeah it was a big relief when that, when that finally came I mean, and you obviously know how
1: quick Fred Wright is were you when you saw that group disappearing were you sort of um,
3: thinking you were leaving Rudy holding a bit of a live grenade there I said to Rudy from you know 60k to the finish I said you need to drop Fred because he's if not he'll roll you in a sprint and uh yeah, I train a lot with Fred, and, uh, yeah, if I do sprints against Fred, you know, it's kind of 60-40 in my favour, so I kind of knew, you know, if it, if it came down to a sprint, then Fred was going to have it, but did he get second on the stage, or? He got third. Oh, did he? Right, okay, um, yeah. In beam. Okay, alright, okay, yeah, yeah, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's only a matter of time before Fred wins the stage, I think that's fair enough, and, uh, yeah, before coming here, he, he kind of uh, spoke to me and said, oh, yeah, see you in Spain, and I was like, oh, okay, uh I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm going straight from the tour. So, yeah, I just kind of told him, like, oh, I know the goodwill to follow them for the breakaways. And, uh, yeah, I found myself there today with Fred, so I kind of knew it was probably a good breakaway to uh, to be in. <laughs> so, Philippe, um, well, it looked as though that, that was a-, a planned move today. I guess you had it in your mind that
1: Jumbo visma might want to give away the red jersey. But tell us about the briefing this morning.
4: Yeah, that, that was a big possibility. I mean, tomorrow would not have been the possibility with a final climb, but... Uh but today was a was a good stage for Jumbo to to give the jersey to a team who is supposed to defend that jersey and and work instead of them. Um, so this morning we we had a talk about that and, and we were thinking that uh, Rudy or Seb Rosenbach could be a good asset. So they they were uh, allowed to go on the breakaway and then invited to be in the breakaway and and Jake. Uh, we asked him to be also there, to, to work for one of those two guys. Uh, at the end, Jake and, and Rudy were in, in and, uh, and Jake, on the final, tried to move to take some advantage on the climb because he's not really a climber. And yeah, we just miss a little bit to, to play for the, the stage victory, but we have a nice uh, red jersey now. Only two seconds on, uh, on Fred Wright, but it's always nice to, to get a jersey like that.
1: You mentioned Jake Stewart. You had to worry and think a lot about another Englishman, Fred Wright, in the finale. What did you think? Well, What was the worst case scenario that you thought might happen, that he might attack on the road into Bilbao?
4: Well, we were pretty confident that uh, Rudy could follow any attacks of uh, Fred. But we knew that Fred is faster than him on sprint, so um, Rudy had to take the bonus on top of the climb, and he had to make sure that uh, nobody will be in between him and Fred on the final sprint. Um, He made it, so he had a nice recompense.
1: And well, you'll probably look now at the profile for tomorrow. It's a long climb, twelve kilometres. It's one of the hardest climbs in the first part of the Welter. How optimistic! Do you think you will be tomorrow morning?
4: Well, you know, uh, the first thing is to enjoy that jersey tonight and and, uh, tomorrow before the start. And then um, we will come with a plan tomorrow morning. We don't know if we can keep it, but uh, we will have a plan to to make sure that uh, Group AmafDG will will do a nice uh, stage again tomorrow.
0: The cycling podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens energy management for committed athletes and coaches still guessing on fueling not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter never again optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data actionable insights and personalized analytics we're here to help you achieve your performance goals go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success
5: Super Sapiens are our title sponsors, of course. We've been talking about the Super Sapiens podcast, which has just hit the airwaves. And in the latest episode, Van Eck and Dr. David Littman talk about a subject which we've all experienced at some time as cyclists, and that's the dreaded bonk. The moment that seems to come out of nowhere when suddenly the energy well runs dry and there's just nothing left feeding through to the legs. Well, the super sapien system of continuous glucose monitoring could make bonking a thing of the past. If you bonk...
0: It's a real good indication you probably didn't do it right. Or if you get GI upset, you know you need to change your fueling plan from eating something random on race day to to not doing that. Bonking refers obviously to hitting a a low and you feel like a car running out of fuel, you know, and you're struggling to get to the gas station. Those are the two extremes is I've either not had enough or perhaps I've gotten this wrong in terms of fuel hydration, those things, and I've got some GI upset as a result. They have different solutions, of course. One of which is, yeah, of course, you need more fuel if you've bonked. Uh, whereas with a GI upset, it's about, you know, can your gut tolerate it? What's changed?
1: Well, we heard before the break from Philippe Maudouis and Jake Stewart of Groupama FDJ. I also heard an earth shattering revelation from uh, Lucky Larry Warbus about Alexander Kristoff. This is on the back of what we revealed um, about Victor Longelotti, the new. King of the Mountains of the Weta Espana and his addiction to FIFA, his addiction to video games. Um, Larry, off mic, then informed me that Alexander Kristoff, what did you say he was, Larry? A world champion?
2: Okay, so I I had I don't know, I had heard that he was like the FIFA national champion of Norway. So uh, I guess we had that fact checked and that might not be true, but but I guess I mean what I did hear before is you know I know. Some people asked him when he was racing for Katusha if he struggled with you know being in like a foreign team and you know not being able to communicate that much with a lot of his teammates but he said as long as he had his FIFA with him, he was always happy so he could go to any team and he'd be happy because he'd just have FIFA. Uh, so I actually think he was an extremely avid FIFA player and that definitely didn't hurt him because those were some of his best years so. I don't know if uh, a video game addiction This is, is the worst, typical of
1: the, This is typical of the genesis of urban myths in cycling journalism. I mean, you know the one about Iban Mayo becoming a lorry driver that went around for years, and in fact, it's still repeated, and it's still, I believe, um, it's in The Secret Race, Tyler Hamilton's book, It Hasn't Been Altered, but that, that just er, uh, arose from confusion with another rider, Isidro Nozal. Um, funny you should <laughs> mention prowess, gaming prowess, or we should mention it because... Um, Oscar Freire was at the Welter this morning. He parked his car next to us in the underground car park. And Oscar Freire, of course, um, he was the Spanish scale electric Champion. You see, I'm guilty now of. Embellishing in the way that you just have, I think he was I think he was about third in the under nines competition, but this this more <laughs> this took on a life of its own, and he became a Spanish champion and then possibly a world champion um, anyway, Larry, as I said, before the break, we heard from Jake Stewart, who was very instrumental in group fdj 's great day today i yeah. 'm um, talking about notably his diagnosis with crohn 's disease earlier in the year, and um, well he had a fantastic Neopro pro year in 2021 and um well wasn't riding as well early this year and and that was the reason but rudy mollard didn't have a very good start to the season either did he
2: no you know i i know uh he struggled quite a bit at the start of the year i guess last year he had a, a bad crash and that set him back a bit and then um yeah i One of my teammates, he's one of his main training partners and, you know, I know uh, he said he struggled with COVID a bit, but I guess, like, another thing that also set him back was he built a new house and, uh, yeah, that took up really, like, a lot of his time and really uh, was occupying him and was hard, so.
1: Does team know this, that the reason for his poor form early in the season was he was too busy building a new house?
2: I I don't know about that, but I guess they'd be aware that he uh, was building a new house, so. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously he uh, got over that and got past that and yeah, maybe that house has helped him uh, perform here in the second half of the year. So I think uh, all of the early uh, season quabbles will be forgotten about. And uh, yeah, I think he'll be really happy and the team with this jersey.
1: Larry, talk to us about what was going on in those final few kilometers with Fred Wright. Well, the, he had the the carrot dangling um, of the well the bonus seconds. If he'd won the stage and Mollard had not got bonus seconds, and um, then he would have taken the red jersey. If he dropped Rudy Mollard, then he also would have got the red jersey. And well, certainly it looked as though it was all coming back together, and, and Soler would be caught until another group. And the group containing Impy, notably joined Fred Wright's group and Rudy Mollard's group. And there, instead of having more riders and more horsepower to chase Soler down, what happened was that confusion took hold and Soler was able to extend his advantage.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think that's kind of an interesting uh, thing that we saw that happens a lot in cycling is, you know, people think like numbers are usually in your favor, but... uh, when there's too many guys, uh, yeah, it doesn't always work that way. So, you know, we saw when it was only five or six guys chasing Solaire, they were bringing down the gap, you know, it was like nine, eight, seven, maybe even six seconds at one point. And then all of a sudden you had, the uh, five, six guys in the group behind who caught them. Uh, and then, you know, all of a sudden you see there's Nikias Arndt and, uh, and Impey and, you know, I guess all the guys in that first chasing group then thought, well, oh, oh, no, we don't, you know, we don't want to bring these guys to the line. And then it kind of caused this cat and mouse, which uh, really played into Solaire's favor. So if it wasn't for that, I think uh, he definitely wouldn't have, yeah, he wouldn't have made it to the line. So that really was good for him. And the other thing I think really helped him was uh, Rudy just totally shadowing um, Fred Wright the whole, yeah, I guess the last few K, because I think that also sort of, uh, yeah, put like um, a bit of a dent in the, in the chasing or, you know, slowed them down a bit. Uh, and, you know, it was best for Rudy to let uh, uh, Mark Soler stay away to take the bonus seconds uh, since Fred Wright has a pretty good sprint. But, but yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting to look at some of these little things that can play in the favor of a guy who's solo uh, in front. And uh, yeah, what let him uh, inevitably win the stage in the end.
1: Larry, Mark Soler is one of those guys we sort of, well, we, we joked about the reputation that he has, but he also has a reputation as someone who, well, when he goes away in circumstances like today, and, it, you know, it did remind me of his last Vuelta State we in Lecumberri a couple of years ago, just on the edge of the Basque Country, and that was in fact, well, it was the penultimate... Um, Spanish stage win in the Grand Tour because the last one was only a couple of days later and that was Jon Izaguirre in Formigal and it's been a long wait for, well, until Mark Solaire finally broke that drought today but he's one of the guys who's got that in his locker, isn't, isn't he? He's one of the guys that, you know, if he goes away on the climb 20, 30, 40 kilometers from the finish even, um, he can stay away.
2: Yeah, I mean, I definitely think he's he's one of those guys who throws these crazy Hail Marys and, and. You know he uh, he does these crazy attacks sometimes. Like also, I, I saw that uh, I didn't see this early in the stage, but apparently uh, the breakaway had actually already gone, and he breached Yeah, up he to breached the grass like, He did. Yeah. So you know it's things like this where like. You, a lot you of were times... still eat,
1: you were still eating your your hash browns and your yeah, waffles exactly. at that
2: point. Exactly. I was trying
1: I was trying to raise Larry when, <laughs> early in the afternoon when there were about seventy or eighty kilometers to yeah. go, but yeah, you were still in slumberland at that point, I think.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, uh, you know, he does these things in races where you look and you're like, what are you doing? You know, like, I mean, attacking, like, super far out, like, from the peloton and whatever. And the thing is, is actually, like, you can see that sometimes they work. And uh, so, yeah, I think he doesn't always race with, like, what people would say is, like, general race logic. But, uh, yeah, it works also, I think, because he's just so strong. Um, But, yeah, it also makes for exciting racing and good to watch. So, uh, So, yeah. It was
1: a good one to see today. In his press conference uh, this afternoon, there, were, there, w- there was a bit of bait dangled. I think a lot of the Spanish journalists in the press room, they wanted some kind of broadside um, against or about Movistar because obviously he has changed teams this year. He's gone to UAE and... And I, I, I suppose, you know, we, we joke about his image, but it was damaged to a large extent by the Movistar documentary, which we all loved because it was quite revealing. And, you know, you had scenes, I think in the latest series, um, last year's Tour de France is covered. And I uh, hope you can you hear the dog barking, now? Oh, yeah. Um, I yeah, it sounds, sounds qu- <laughs> quite excited by the mention of El Dia Menos Pensado, the, doc- the Movistar documentary. But yeah, I think um, last year's Tour de France is covered in the latest series, and uh, Marc crash in the first stage is covered. And. You have scenes where, I can't remember which director sportive it is, but they're sort of minimising the crash and saying, well, um, we're surprised he's making such a meal of it. And, you know, I did wonder the Tour de France this year when he did sort of soldier on through that stage tour at Foix, um, and was outside the time limit. I, I did wonder whether that was in part a, a response to um, these sort of slurs that have propagated about Marc Solaire.
2: Uh, I mean, to be honest, I get the impression that he's not too uh, concerned about what the media or the other guys are saying about him, and he just kind of does his own thing. So I, I, I imagine he really more did that for himself than, you know, to prove any of the, the haters wrong. But uh, but yeah, I mean, maybe he did. I, I'm not sure. Uh, it's it's hard to say. But, you know, he doesn't strike me as the kind of guy who's too, uh, I don't know, concerned about, like, a lot of the things going on around him. <laughs>
1: no I mean the image that sort of sums up and speaks to that, I suppose, is that image which became a bit of a meme, and I think it was from the stage to Andorra in two thousand and nineteen where he pulled out the earpiece and sort of threw the earpiece very theatrically and that's a, that's an image that stuck with him, really, isn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. no. I could even see like the replay of that uh in my head, you know because I saw it so many times but but yeah, I mean, I guess sometimes it's hard to recover from those things, but uh but I think
1: he is. Larry, today a breakaway did stay away. Yesterday the breakaway did not have as much success and well after the stage, a few of the members of that breakaway, notably Alessandro de Marchi and a couple of others um, complained about the influence of the motorbikes yesterday and they said that the The television motorbikes in particular were favouring the peloton, favouring the chase. It was also something that Ethan Hayter mentioned in his interview after the finish yesterday that it seemed as though the TV cameraman didn't want the brake to succeed. Now... This morning in Irún, I and another group of other journalists asked the race director, Javier Guillen, about precisely this issue. And I also asked him about another um, sort of minor stir in the teacup at the Vuelta over the last few days, and that was the safety of the stages in the Netherlands, um, which we know Alejandro Valverde and Mikel Landa were pretty upset about. Here's Javier Guillen this morning.
6: Well... We are at the beginning of the Vuelta. We always have this kind of uh, warmth of the riders. We need to check it out. What I can say, we really insist uh, in our uh, cameraman how they have to manage uh, the race. Actually, this is uh, the first uh, edition and I think it's uh, one of the first races in the in the calendar that has introduced the rule that when there is an escape in the descent, the cameraman, the motor man only can film behind the rider, not before. When they are in the peloton, you know, you need to film uh, before the peloton. But for sure, we are going to insist them that to get the distance, I don't know exactly, you know. I check it out with my organization people. They said to me they didn't see anything strange, but my, my duty is to listen everybody just to try you know, to, be, to do all our best uh, in terms to manage uh, the world very well.
1: I'm from TV, I want good, good pictures, I want great pictures.
6: We depend on TV. I mean, with no TV, no race, but anyway, everything is possible. So we need to combine because at the end, this is an official sport race. So we need uh, to have all the sport principles, you know, uh, to respect uh, then TV know uh, that riders also know that TV is crucial but everybody you know must know how to manage how to be in the race thank you so much Javier, just, just just one thing um,
1: Mikel Landa and Alejandro Valverde made well, the comments that you probably heard about the course in the Netherlands and what have you said to them or what would you say to them
6: well I, I, I say nothing because I didn't talk them but in this case my uh, duty is uh, in both sides uh, first of all no polemic I don't want to enter in a discussion second thing I have to listen uh, everybody uh, Besides that uh, everybody knows the route there you know we announced the, the parkour the, the route uh, in advance and we didn't do anything different than any other races or any other big events hand down before uh, us It's true that when you finish the state, your sensibility is different than when, you know, you have a little bit of time. But uh, that's not an excuse. You know, I'm not going to say they are not right. I'm saying I have to listen then. And for us, security is the most important thing. It's the first issue, first uh, priority in the the race. But if there is something that we have uh, to improve, for sure we'll do. So, Larry, what did you make of that?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess the thing that's, uh, it's tough for, I'm sure, the race director because, uh, you know, I don't know how much influence he has on the TV motorbikes or anything like that. So, you know, I know it's always been an issue in the Vuelta. Uh, The times I've done the Vuelta, there's definitely, but it's not only the Vuelta, you know. Uh, But yeah, in a lot of the races we do, there's, there's a lot of influence from the TV motorbikes and uh, yeah it's, it's 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 hard to say whether you know who knows if this is like a premeditated thing and you know something that's planned maybe they want the the peloton to win or you know the break are,
1: are the larry patterns often you hear um allegations that are made about well or criticisms of organizers and they tend to be sort of uh, stereotype they tend to be along the lines of well in belgian racing this always happens in french racing this always happens are there any patterns that you've seen
2: you know i think the thing is if you look for patterns you'll see them uh so you know maybe it's one of those sort of self-fulfilling prophecy things uh but you know yeah i know like you know for example once when uh i was in the vuelta and i was in a breakaway that you know was should have been destined to stay away with, you know, we had probably 20 guys in it, and, you know, there was no one on GC, no one like important, and uh, we were all sure we were going to the line. And uh, yeah, I guess Contador wanted to win the stage that year. And uh, yeah, Saxo started pulling behind and apparently just sat on the motorbike the whole time while us in the breakaway had no motorbike anywhere near us. Uh, And yeah, so then we thought, wow, okay, you know, like the organizers just want to see uh, Contador win a stage in, you know, one of his last uh, Vueltas. So, um, you know, whether that was true or not, you know, there's other days where you're in the breakaway and the breakaway is on the moto. So um, it's really hard to say
1: larry is this something that you feel and you well you talk about you riders all talk about because you can feel it on your own skin and you can feel viscerally almost the impact that it has on a race or is it also something that you've become more aware of as the peloton has become more and more switched on to marginal gains and the impact of aerodynamics and you know it's, it's it's a subject that's constantly talked about whether it's linked to clothing or linked to bikes um, aerodynamics are the forefront of everyone's mind.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, now aerodynamics are everything and it's something we think about all the time. Um, and I guess maybe also now that, like, you know, there's been more and more talks of the motorbikes. You know, I think the thing is, is when you're in the Peloton, if you're, say, middle of the bunch, so 50, 60 guys down, and uh, the guys riding the front are on the motorbike, I mean, you are just doing a full sprint to hold the wheel every time you go out of a corner. If they come out right on the motorbike, it's like the craziest elastic, and and so in the end, it makes the race insanely hard for the guys in the middle of the bunch too. And then you know, if you say have a teammate in the breakaway, you know that you're essentially just ruining the chances of your teammate, and so that's when a lot of the guys start, I guess, to freak out. But also, you know, I guess for us. Uh, you know, I guess we don't see it as fair, uh, and it's it's not cool that they're influencing the race because even if it's benefiting us, sometimes you know, say you're in the bunch and you don't have anyone in the breakaway, you don't you don't want the race to be influenced by uh, these outside forces. You know, it should be a more fair, I guess, situation. And the thing is, is like the guys riding the front, you can't. Uh, I guess you can't fault them for following the motorbike if it's in front of them. You know, like you're going to take any advantage that's in front of you. And uh, yeah, if the motorbike wants to be closer to you, you know, uh, you're going to ride behind him. So you can't really fault the guys riding. And uh, yeah, it's just a bit of a shame. And and I think it's just, uh, yeah, it it just affects the race. And we just want the race to be uh, as unaffected uh, by those sort of things, these outside factors as possible.
1: I suppose the one sort of pushback against that would be that if you go back and watch races from the 90s that whatever assistance there is these days is small beer compared to if you go back and watch footage of Milan San Remo in the 90s on the Poggio in particular it was a whole phalanx of, of motorbikes which really must have had an enormous impact on the race but I suppose you know, the riders back then didn't necessarily have the platforms and the ways and means to communicate their grievances. Um, Larry, just one last thing, or what Javier uh, Jens said there about safety in the Netherlands, a valid point that, you know, the riders know what they're going into.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I'll be honest, I thought that was kind of a funny point because, uh, yeah, I mean, we might know, we might be able to see the course before, but that doesn't mean we can change it. So uh, if it's a super dangerous course, it doesn't really benefit us to know that it's super dangerous before. Uh, so, I mean, yeah. As a, I don't know how that really proves anything as a point. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, it's hard. I think at the same time, you know, if you're going to do a race in the Netherlands and then especially a race with the profile of the Vuelta, it's always going to be dangerous just because of the nature of the roads there. Uh, there's, you know, I mean, an insane amount of traffic furniture. And maybe it's just when you go to do Amstel Gold Race, it's just that's all you talk about before. You know, uh, yeah, there's an insane amount of traffic furniture and, you know, there's going to be a lot of crashes uh, because of these different things in the road. Um, And you don't expect that as much as the Vuelta. So I guess maybe that's one of those things that, you know, takes guys a bit more by surprise, even though, I mean, yeah, it's just the nature of the roads there. And I don't know if you could make an even safer route. Uh, So... Yeah, I think it's something that's hard to deal with. Shoot, shoot at the rear of Cycling podcast team car, the back of the pack, please.
5: That's Seb PK, the voice of Radio Tour, and this is Lionel here to tell you that this episode of our Vuelta coverage is sponsored by LinkedIn Jobs, which we've used in the past to recruit for the Cycling Podcast. And whether you run a small, medium, or large company, LinkedIn could be just the place if you're looking to hire for your organisation because. It's the world's largest professional network with more than 30 million people in the UK alone having LinkedIn profiles. So if you're looking to hire, you can post your job ad for free and then use the purple hiring hashtag frame to your LinkedIn profile and that will give people an indication that you're looking to recruit. And from there you can use a simple tools such as screening questions to find just the right people because that makes it easier to narrow down your focus to the people with just the right skills and experience for your company. And from there you can quickly prioritize who you'd like to interview and ultimately hire. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus their leading competitors. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates you want to talk to faster and you can post a job ad for free. Just visit linkedin.com slash cycle. That's linkedin.com slash cycle to post your job ad for free. Terms and conditions apply.
0: Ritmo de la Vuelta The Rhythm of the Vuelta
1: This is El Ritmo de la Vuelta our breakneck descent our musical memory lane and through the annals of this race Today, Larry, we're going back to 2012 when the official song was Dia Cero by Oreja, The Oreja de Van Gogh um, Van Gogh's ear um, why did we go for these cats today? Well, because they hail from San Sebastián, which the race visited after 12.5 kilometres today. The name uh, the band were originally called N- The Nameless, perhaps taking their inspiration from Brian Nygaard's description, very um, pejorative, very unfair description of the breakaway and yesterday's stage summary time trial. The band later explained that the song was about the bitter taste that's left after a bad argument, particularly when things have been said that should never be said. That sounds like a the tagline for the cycling podcast Um, that year's Vuelta a España was an unforgettable one largely due to the events of one day in fact Fuente Day the scene of a now legendary hold up by Alberto Contador to Rob Purito Rodriguez of what as it turned out would have been his solitary Grand Tour victory Purito had, taken a, had um, he'd got ahead on a route brimming with summit finishes. There were 11 of them. And he had taken the Mayor Rojo from Alejandro Valverde on stage 4 and held it, yes, all the way through the Pyrenees and the Picos de Europa until five days from the end, the peloton reached Cantabria and specifically Fuente de Having only returned from his controversial, belated, backdated doping ban at the Eneco Tour a couple of weeks earlier, Contador had been thwarted by Purito throughout the Vuelta, but was still poised, just 28 seconds behind him on general classification. The stage of Fuente Day looked routine on paper, but attacking 50 kilometers from the finish and using three teammates sent off in early attack to step ladders, Contador broke down Rodriguez physically, tactically, and perhaps above all mentally. He later called it his greatest victory and he duly went on to win the second of his three Vuelta's in Madrid four days later. The same afternoon, John Degenkolb was taking his fifth stage win of that Vuelta a España. These were his first Grand Tour stage wins. Um, John Degenkolb of course went on to win milan Remo later before the dreadful accident and a, had a training camp in 2016 which changed the course of his career. Still an excellent rider of course if was not um, a prolific winner nowadays and John Degenkolb is riding the Huerta España this year and I spoke to him this morning about his memories of 2012. Let's hear them now. When you think back to 2012, what's the first image of that Walter that comes into your head? the first sprint was uh, was pretty
7: uh, iconic also it was like yeah, a little bit uphill and then, and then like a, a left-hand band. I was battling uh, quite hard with uh, Alan Davis uh, that day. So, Alan Davis, was I was beating him uh, not by a, a lot, actually. I was i was just taking him before the line. So, uh, I, I, I still remember from that year that uh, I actually won five stages, but I was not able to win the green jersey in the end. So... Um, Maybe I should have uh, tried even more to get some intermediate points uh, in between the stages. Uh, But uh, the year after I
2: could win the the green jersey, so that was was a, a huge achievement.
1: Larry, I should also have mentioned that Primoz Roglic's director sportif Grisha Nieman quit cycling that day. That was his last uh, race, um, the last stage of the 2012 Vuelta a Espana. What was Lucky Larry Warbass doing in the summer or the late summer of 2012?
2: Uh, I was uh, I was a stagiaire for BMC, so that was my first year. Um, I guess as sort of a pro. Uh, I did the tour of Utah with them, I believe. And then I came and raced a bunch of races in Belgium. So, uh, yeah.
1: 2012, yeah. wow. Larry, this, this feeds in, this um, is relevant to what we're going to be discussing next. Um, in 2012, when you were a stagiaire, how much did you suffer from a kind of imposter syndrome or an anxiety that you did not belong as a professional cyclist?
2: Um, I mean, I would say back then the hardest part was uh, I had some pretty old school teammates that, uh, yeah, they sort of like beat me down, I guess. Uh, Come
1: on, name names, Larry. Come on, name names. Name name and shame them.
2: Okay, I mean, I'll say like uh, Marcus Berghardt was pretty hard on me and uh, Manuel Quinziato... Uh, but you know, like, Man- it was,
1: Manuel, Manuel's a good friend of mine
2: now. I mean, this was only in my best interest, you know, like that, they, they just really tried to make me the best sort of teammate, uh, that I could be. So they were, they were just trying to get the most out of me, I guess, you know, but, uh, you know, it was... How did
1: that, ma- give me an example of how that manifested itself. Was it sort of dressing, dressing down in the bus or... Oh, uh, no, or was so that? like,
2: I don't know, for example, I think, uh, we did, um... Franco Bells, or one of these, I don't know, at the time, it was like a stage race. And I I don't know, one day, like, maybe I wasn't around them as much as I as I could have been, you know. So they just started calling me ghost, you know, Hey, ghost, 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 you know, and then Oh, the ghost, uh, whatever. So, so for like a day, they just called me a ghost. And then uh, the next day, I was like, I'm not gonna, like, they will not not see me for a single second today, you know? So in the end, I like wouldn't even let them more than, you know, uh, a centimeter from me. And uh, yeah, and then the next day they're like, wow, you did a really good job. So, uh, so yeah, uh, uh, you know, I guess those are more the things I, I, I think about. Um, I never really thought like, oh, I didn't think I belonged or something, but it was hard to deal with some of those things as a, as a Neo pro and I, I don't think that happens as much anymore.
1: Well, Larry, I said this was relevant to the discussion we were about to have because we're going to talk about a rider who was well, an interesting story. He's riding his first Grand Tour here at the Vuelta a España. He was the subject of a really in- interesting interview with our, or done by our great, beloved colleague Richard Moore uh, a couple of years ago in December 2020. And the rider is James Shaw. And, well, his is the story of a kid from Nottingham who turned probably very young. He was 20 when he debuted with Lotto Sudau in 2017 he acquitted himself pretty well in the first couple of years but his performances were sort of considered too unremarkable to merit a contract renewal he dropped all the way down to continental division then he went up to pro continental then down again to continental division racing with Ribble in 2021 and Uh, Richard's interview in 2020, at the end of 2020, um, James Shaw, he talked about uh, how, well, it it was very difficult to get by on the the salary that he was getting at continental um, level, but he hadn't hadn't completely given up on his dream. Um, He was trying desperately to find a team at a higher level, but was working without an agent. And it looked pretty bleak, the outlook. However, he did find his way back into the world tour through, well, ability, good results, bloody-mindedness. And, as I said, he is here riding this Da España, his first grand tour for EF um, Education Easy Post. And he is the subject of today's Encuentro del Día. El Encuentro del Día. The meeting of the day. Um, Nice day out yesterday. Was there a bit of a sour taste when you realised afterwards the effect that... Well, everyone seemed to think that the motorbikes had a big effect on yesterday.
7: Uh, I didn't actually realise the effect of the motorbikes until someone mentioned it this morning and said I should go back and watch the footage and did I think the bike was too close. But it already happened and I thought to myself, I'd rather not know. I'd rather not see it. I'd rather... I don't want to... I don't want uh, to live in a bit of past. So I, I didn't watch it and I just sort of took it on the chin and said, it is what it is. So I, I didn't watch it. I don't know how close it got. So I, I don't really know.
1: And generally, how have you come into this World Day Spain? How have you been feeling? I mean, it's your first Grand Tour. Big moment for you. Yeah, the first one, I a bit... I,
7: not unsure, but like obviously when I get to day nine, day ten, I'm into the unknown then, you know, and... and What's the big doubt about that? What's the big fear about that? I don't know, really. I think it's just the fear of the unknown, isn't it? Just uh, not really knowing what happens or what's going to happen or... Um, just the thought of something new—it again, it's the the comfort zone is being is being the boundaries are being pushed, aren't they? So I don't know if it's necessarily a fear or more of like a a slight nervousness, like you know, uh, you know. I, I I've seen people my ability ride the races before and stuff. I know it's possible. I know it can be done. So yeah, just that slight sort of
1: anxiety of of the unknown, really. I mean, especially. So yesterday, stage four, you obviously do a big effort to get in the break. Are you almost, when you do that, thinking, oh, am I going to pay for this in five days or six days? Yeah, that was always in the back of my mind. I think
7: um, in the heat as well. You know, you sometimes you forget how much it takes out of you and, and stuff like that. And yeah, no, I, I committed to yesterday. I, I thought I had a had a good chance of going. I was, I think, if. Jumbo had been on their own. I thought, I think they were pretty happy to pass the jersey on. And then when they got a whiff of the the finish line, and obviously I think Bora did the majority of the work for it, and didn't really have any, don't have anything to show for that effort. Um, yeah, no, I, I, as well. I thought maybe Quick Step with Alaphilippe would be a bit more a bit more active you know I think you pretty if you're going to gamble against Philippe on a finish like that it, you're brave sort of thing so no I thought there was a small chance it was good. I think that was the thing in the team as well we said uh, <laughs> we don't want to miss an opportunity if it does go you know get in it cover it if it goes to the finish then we make the best of the opportunity and unfortunately it didn't but we'll you know, we'll try again today with someone else and then I'll I'll have another crack later on later on in the
3: race.
1: I mean at this point in this season, this kind of comeback to the World Tour season, um relative to your expectations of how it was gonna go, um, how has it gone?
7: Yeah, it's been a bit uh, up and down really. I started the season really well in February, um, and then first race back uh, caught COVID on the flight home, and just had this sort of like long lingering, long COVID uh, illness. Not really like uh, I wasn't coughing, I wasn't, you know, I, I didn't have any symptoms, but I just had this like sort of like a bit of a draining fatigue feeling, and that went that went on for a good four months, and it wasn't until. Uh, it wasn't until the national championships when I really started to pick the ball up and get it rolling again. So I sort of prepared myself mentally and physically to try and make the most of the second half of the year, put the first half behind me and say, you know, everyone's going to have this illness that at some point. You know, I think... 99% of the peloton have had it so everyone's in the same boat so yeah so sort of just make sure that I carry on as planned now for the second half and make the most of it and like I say when the opportunities to go in the breakaway that may go to the finish come along I'm going to make sure I try and grab them with both hands
1: really I didn't want to remind you of it but you mentioned that difficult start of the season and it was in the Basque country I, I guess that was one of the worst days when um, on the State of Arate, you're outside the time limit I mean there were, yes. there, there, there were riders all over the road that day, so there's no shame in that.
7: No, no I, yeah, I, I like you say, I, I had a rough week there. It was... And you, a, a race like Pays Vasco, you... you you can't go to a 95% you've got to be on your A game and I was so far off there, and I struggled and I paid the price for it there was one day I punctured after 9k and I never saw the peloton again that was it. I spent the whole day in the cars chasing in small groups uh, it pretty much just summed up my whole race really but yeah like I said I look back on it right now and yeah it wasn't it, it wasn't the best of times but it, it sort of makes you appreciate when things are going better when things are a bit more plain sailing, yeah. You sort of you, you appreciate it because it's easy to forget that that it's all everyone sees the television and the Instagram stories, and I think it's all sunshines and rainbows. And it's really, it's really
1: not. And just last thing, James I mean, talking of Instagram posts, I saw one the other day where the whole team was sitting around. I think you were having a coffee. And I thought, what an eclectic group that looked an Eritrean, a Lancastrian, someone from Nottingham, Colombians. Ukrainians, um, how is how is it so sort of meshing together? Yeah,
7: it's good. I think I think even as a team, we are the most. Uh diverse team i think even even our staff roster we have staff from all over the world japanese staff and stuff like that so we sort of really have this sort of like a, sort of like a heinz 57 team really of sort of a, bit, a bit, bit of everything and everybody brings something a little bit different to the team you know i think if you you get big teams that bulk out the majority of their riders with one nation it can get a little bit a little bit samey a little bit repetitive and a little bit no, not boring but you know like a little, just a little bit run of the mill where this and every day is different you know every day is something new a bit of a crazy gang oh 100% like Rigo is madder
1: than this <laughs> so so Larry do you identify with that I mean I asked you about your experience as a, stag- a stagiaire um, but when you came to ride Grand Tours that sort of all encompassing anxiety and it, it's an anxiety you and I spoke earlier this afternoon about you know the, the different fears you have as a professional cyclist whether it's the fear of a, a given day waking up in the morning and knowing that you're going to be riding with guys who will dictate the pace of a race and they're more talented than you or they're in better form than you and um, the fear of crashing the fear of losing your contract the fear of simply not being good enough the fear that of maybe that, that maybe you should be doing something different with your life.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I, I probably went through all those uh, emotions uh, and fears, so uh, I, I thought it was pretty interesting listening to him talk about, you know, like the fears of like a grand tour, because, you know, it's one of these things that's so built up when you're young, and there's all these myths of uh, grand tours, and, you know, I guess uh, before you do one, all you know is like what everyone tells you about it, and you know, oh, it's like, you always there's all you always have a bad day and there's this and that and the other thing but it, it's kind of funny for me to hear that from uh, James because I don't know I guess like to me seeing him in the peloton this year he he was really strong and uh, I guess every time I raced him he seemed to have a really good level and uh, so in my head he's kind of been in the peloton for a long time uh, and I kind of didn't even realize that he just came back pro with uh, or like world tour with EF this year um, so it's it's funny. For me being on the outside uh seeing him as a super strong guy this season that you know he, he's scared of these things because uh yeah i mean it, it's funny because i guess i kind of forgot my first grand tour was the vuelta in 2014 and uh, i remember you know i remember always waiting for like this bad day that everyone talked about you know oh yeah, you always have at least one bad day in a grand tour and then one day it was super easy. And I think like mentally, I just told myself like this would be my bad day. And I remember being, oh my gosh, I'm suffering so much and this and that and the other thing. And and in the end, it wasn't a very hard day. And uh, yeah, I think it's just this thing that like mentally we can build up these stories in our head just uh, from all the guys around us and uh, these, yeah, I guess uh, fables that we hear. And uh, in the end, I think a lot of it's just mental so uh so yeah it's pretty interesting to hear that
1: i mean i sort of touched on in the interview um larry this kind of fear this paralysis that can that can come about again and it's sort of fed nourished by like you say the sort of myths or the received ideas that you have to you know you start a grand tour with a full glass and you've got to count every drop of energy and you know i i guess some riders can can almost become afraid of their own shadow and they don't want to move, they don't want to do anything in the race, they don't want to attack because they're worried that they're going to pay for it. The, the bill is going to land on their table a few days later. I mean, yesterday morning I spoke to Alessandro de Marchi um, about a sort of related topic. Um, you know, the Giro earlier this year, he really struggled for form and he struggled to get into breaks early in the race. Um, and I said to him, you know, Are you want the, the, the kind of guy who really prepares your breakaways months in advance and you know you've you've gone on veloviewer and you've and you've plotted exactly how you're going to get into a break every day and he said no with age i've learned that you have to be ready to go at any time and you know the opportunity may never come in a grand tour if you wait and wait and wait and i suppose you know that can even apply to someone who is riding their first grand tour would you agree
2: yeah i definitely think so you know i i, I think actually in the past maybe it was easier to plan because uh Maybe guys, not everyone had Velo Viewer and all these things. And now it's just like what was once an advantage, like really looking into a stage and stuff. Everyone has, it's an even playing field. So now I think it's like, if you're too calculated, you're going to miss a chance. Uh, and I learned that last year in the Giro. I, I think I tried to be really, really calculated. And in the end, I, I almost never made it into the breakaway. I think I was in one break. So, um, you know, I think there's, definitely a fine balance and you really have to sort of rely on your own intuition and you know not necessarily look at like uh you know i don't know if you use logic sometimes you're just gonna i don't know think yourself and overthink yourself out of uh, a breakaway so uh yeah i think it's just kind of one of those things you have to go and uh hope that you you can have the right judgment when the time comes in the race
1: has your Have your fears faded, Larry, or completely dissolved, vaporized? Do you have any fears left uh, as a professional cyclist? You know, I think you always
2: have some fears. Uh, you know, it's kind of one of those things, like, uh, I'm definitely more, I guess, confident in the races now. I'm not worried about, like, uh, getting dropped or something, like, you know, not finishing a, a stage, you know, I, I guess... You know, my first Grand Tour, that would definitely have been something that I was scared of. It's like, well, what if I have such a bad day that I'm going to be like in the last groupeto and I don't even make it, you know, and I get dropped from the last groupeto. And, you know, I don't know, that's maybe only like once or twice happened to me in my career where I have like had to fight to stay in the groupetto. Um, But that also is because I'm sort of, you know, a climber-ish guy. So maybe for a sprinter, that's, that's something more... Um, yeah, that could happen more often, but I would say for me, um, the fears that I would deal with more are just, um, you know, I guess after a long time away. So for example, when I come back from this injury, I'll probably be a bit scared in my first race because, you know, when you haven't raced in a long time, you don't know how you're going to perform because all the numbers and training and everything like that, that's one thing, but, uh, really getting in the race and, uh, performing there is a total different, uh, ball game. So um, yeah, I guess things like that I'm a little bit scared of. Uh, but beyond that, I, I don't have too many fears anymore because I've done it for so long.
1: Phantom Warbus, one time Phantom Warbus is now fearless. Exactly. Take that, Manuel Quinciato. <laughs> science in Sport
0: is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España. Science in Sport, fueled by science.
5: Thank you very much to Science in Sport, our long-term supporters, of course, and we're very grateful to them for that support. And I'm sure lots of our listeners are very appreciative of the discount code, which gives 25% off everything at scienceinsport.com. I'm sure you all know it by now. It's SISCP25, and you enter it at the check-in once you've filled your shopping basket. I've been doing a fair bit of riding whilst Daniel's been hard at work at the Vuelta. And when I do a long ride or a particularly tough ride, I always give myself a bottle of Science in Sport Rigo, the rapid recovery powder, because it just makes me feel better, it makes the muscles feel uh, less painful the next morning. The idea is that you drink it as soon as possible after exercise and it's proven to stimulate muscle glycogen rethinsesis, which is basically repairing your muscles after a long ride and replacing all of the fuel that you've lost while in the saddle. As I say, the Science and Sport discount code, SISCP25. They've got everything you need for before, during, and after your ride.
0: La etapa de mañana, la cena de ayer. Tomorrow's
1: stage, yesterday's food. Larry my dinner last night it was another evening when the vegan diet had to be sacrificed um I had a carrillera guisada which is a kind of a beef stew beef slow cooked beef cheek I think um, slow cooked in red wine and it was it was pretty tasty it was pretty tasty looking forward to trying some pinchos tonight in Bilbao we've got the fiestas de verano the summer the summer party Tonight in Bilbao. It should be pretty raucous. Um, <laughs> so, looking forward to that, Larry. Larry, um, tomorrow we are going into Cantabria. We're leaving the Basque Country. Tell us about tomorrow's stage.
3: Yeah,
2: so tomorrow is the sixth stage from Bilbao to Ascension al Picojano San Miguel de Aguayo. And uh, I think the mountain will take as long to ride up as it does to say the name of it. <laughs> it
6: Full
2: marks. Uh, kilometers with uh, 3,682 meters of climbing. And yeah, it's the first real mountaintop finish of the Vuelta. So I think uh, it'll be a really good one to watch. Uh, The last climb is about a little over 30 minutes it should take. It's 12K at 6.7%. And it's in two parts, like the first 5.5K a little bit harder and then a little downhill with a final 4K at about 7%. So um, I don't know. For me, I'm going to predict another breakaway because I don't think, uh, you know, the the leaders are going to want to pull back uh, any any move, but uh, I guess we could see FDJ trying to hold on to the jersey, um, but maybe they'll four, just keep... Sorry?
1: Four minutes, Larry. Four minutes, nine seconds. Rudy Moller. I would say, if you were to ask me on any normal day how much time Rudy Moller would lose to Primoz Roglic... I would possibly say three to four minutes uh, on a 126 kilometer climb like that, would you?
2: Uh, I think that Rudy, if he really goes like full gas, he can maybe stay within two minutes. So I don't think he has to fear losing the jersey too much tomorrow because uh, if he's in good shape, which I'm guessing he is, he can climb pretty well, so...
1: The climb tomorrow, Larry. It's hard, particularly the final climb. It's hard in the first half. Um, I think the the first six kilometres are well. The the average is more like nine percent rather than six point five percent average of the total climb. Um, I mentioned Oscar Freire, former multi multiple time Spanish scale electric champion. Allegedly, um, he he lives not far from the climb, and he did a recon for. Local newspaper, the Diario Montañés. Um, recently, he went out with his son. Actually, his son, who is now 16, is quite a promising rider, I believe. And um, Oscar said that he thinks that you could lose the World Spaniard tomorrow, but you can't win it. I mean, that's a cliche, I suppose, that we use for first big climbs in all Grand Tours. Um, but what do you what do you expect to see at the sort of pointy end of the GC battle tomorrow? I mean, based on what we saw yesterday and how much How much sort of, well, spice um, Primoz Roglic seems to have in his legs? What do you think we're going to see tomorrow?
2: Uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess I could maybe see some guys like uh, Bora and these other teams trying to put some pressure on him on on the final climb. Um, But I mean, I think for the moment, Roglic will be pretty untouchable. So I don't think he's going to lose any time. Um, I think also the last part isn't steep enough to make like huge, huge differences. And uh, I kind of imagine we're going to see like four or five of the GC guys going to the line together. Um, And I still think though, uh, there's going to be a breakaway taking the stage win.
1: Have you seen anything, Larry? Did you see anything yesterday on that short rise, that short final climb up to La Guardia um, that would make you worry about one of the the guys who has been touted as a favorite for this for this race a yates or uh carapaz or um maybe one of the others that that did suffer a little bit yesterday Uh, incidentally on yates i mean the the word from the team this morning was that it was a a positioning problem more than anything and he did it actually feel pretty good on the final climb yesterday
2: that's you know i was gonna say i think on a stage like yesterday you can potentially see certain guys who are going really well, but I wouldn't say if you don't see a guy that it means they're going badly because yeah, it looks like pretty technical going in. And then, uh, you know, if you're not in perfect positions, a bunch of guys are getting dropped, going back, you can get caught behind some guys. And so, uh, I guess for me, it's good to see like, okay, certain guys are looking strong. Like actually, I mean, my teammate Ben O'Connor to me, he looked pretty impressive yesterday on that final climb, but I wouldn't say that like, uh, because you didn't see a guy super present doesn't mean that he's not super good. Because also, like a thirty-minute climb versus a two-minute climb is a very different ball game.
1: Ben O'Connor, who of course has a new nickname on the cycling podcast, Super Bock. Um, uh. B.O.C. B.O.C. Um, it's Portuguese beer. It's, it's not really catching on, Larry. It's one of, another one of my lamentable attempts to propagate a nickname. But, you know, <laughs> um, 13, 14. No, how many stages left in the Vuelta? So, lots of stages left in the world to, to make that stick. So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I thought still, maybe
2: like Boca Dio or something. I was yeah, like, oh, maybe he really likes sandwiches. You're better,
1: you're better at this than me. Well, larry you will be joining us tomorrow but for now that concludes the evening's entertainment i'm off to enjoy the fiestas in bilbao what have you got planned for today larry
2: i've got like a three or four hour bike ride and then uh yeah a nice uh meal with my family at uh, one of our favorite restaurants so
6: uh my favorite
2: dessert ever uh well it's actually like really like american so uh it's like you know they're known for their fried chicken and then they have this oh, like god. uh this dessert that's like wow. this hot fudge cream puffs oh my god is... i hope
1: vincent i hope vincent lavenu has, has not I renewed know. his his subscription to the cycling podcast yeah yeah
2: yeah i don't know if he'll be listening but uh maybe i'll have to post a photo for you guys all to see this uh this sunday oh, because it's pretty magnificent
1: and we said that mark solaire was wayward he's off winning stage of the west Espana. you're ordering double helpings of of fudge dessert dear me you you need
2: need the calories to repair the bones so uh, I'm just really working (laughs) on healing right
1: now well I will be here to rescue you from your calorie coma tomorrow (laughs) Um, until then I'm going to wish you and the listeners um, I wish you could buy in Basque I think the Goodbye and good night is Agur and Gabon in Basque. Um, that's the last Basque I'll be speaking tonight for in the Huerta España. So good night, Larry, and thank you very goodnight. much. Good night.
2: Thank you. See ya.
6: The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed, and Lionel Burney.